Kako. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Thank you so much for our time together today. I really hope you're going to enjoy meeting Honolulu's Housing Director, Anton Krucki. He's in, uh, he is the new city administration's point person in Chinatown. Mr. Krucki is part Hawaiian, but didn't live here until 1986. That's when he moved here to consolidate Pacific operations for IBM. In 2001, he co-founded Tissue Genesis, a locally-based firm that applies stem cell technologies. Mr. Krucki's still on their board, and he's been a director for Child and Family Service, as well as chair of the Bishop Museum Board, among other community efforts. Krucki says Mayor Blangiardi pulled him out of retirement and now he's been to a downtown Chinatown neighborhood board meeting. He's already talking to business owners, residents, city department heads. And Mr. Krucki says Chinatown is a complex picture. You know, the, the Chinatown mosaic is not absolutely one thing. It's many things. I like that word you used, mosaic, the Chinatown oh. mosaic. What are you doing then? Okay. We're doing a, a multiple set of things. Again, starting with the community. And then we want to collaborate and communicate. And the concept of Chinatown as a treasure, as a historic center is, is fundamental to that. We've already started working with people there to do graffiti cleanup on our buildings and then uh, working and supporting the community members that want to do graffiti. Your efforts on graffiti are noticed. Oh, good. Thank you. What's the status of that River of Life partial relocation? We're going to lease space to them next to the uh, Punavai rest stop there. It's right next door yes. on the other side. That building is slated to open in late April, May timeframe. And we're finishing up the lease negotiations now with River of Life, and that should be finished up in, in a couple of weeks. That operation will be moving. Right. The feeding operation will yeah. be moving. That's my understanding. And I think there's a lot of people who feel like you could force people to do certain things, and you really can't. I mean, and nor, nor should you, right? There's been a project for 10 years uh, in the making for the uh, senior housing center, Hale Violu. I think that'll be a big boost to Chinatown too. They just started digging and, and there's some things they ran into, so they're going to have to deal with that properly. So, What are the options you think for the city-owned properties there in Chinatown? I mean, the city owns about 40% of the street front properties there. Yeah. Don't you think we should be better stewards? Yeah, let's think. So what Scott, can we do with Scott that? Hayashi, who's the uh, Department of Land Management, he runs those buildings. He and I have been in, in regular conversations, and now we've brought them into the Chinatown meetings. They, through our Department of Facilities Management, you know, are going to do some work there. So we're going to invest in those buildings, not just cleaning them up, but how we want to operate them. But, you know, that's an interesting piece of the city. There's all these departments, right? And the new mayor, he's very much on teamwork. You know, he comes from a sports background and he wants all of us to be good team players, if you will. One of the things that's, that, that really is a demonstration of that is we're gonna take four or five departments heads, right? And they're gonna walk along with the mayor in Chinatown. And we're scheduling it so that as they walk from block to block, different members of the community are gonna be there to brief us about that area, right? And if we decide we wanna do something, he can turn around and say, okay, this piece is uh, land management. This piece is permitting. All of you are right here. Let's get it done. And then we can move on to another block. And I think that's the kind of management that we haven't seen. And I'll also tell you this. I, I don't want to tell you the date it is, and here's why. It's because we don't want it to be a media event. We want it to be a community interaction event as opposed to staging ourselves up as doing this neat thing. We just want to really do it. And I think that that speaks volumes for the kind of team that the mayor's put together almost all new directors, right? I'm very excited about that. We're also in our buildings, we have space and we're gonna move part of our culture and arts department. We're gonna move some of those members into Chinatown, recognizing the art district that it is and having part of our operation be in Chinatown. A lot of the complaints that do come forward about Chinatown involve the Honolulu Police Department. It's such a difficult thing in um, street enforcement. I mean. We, we have to catch the people uh, if it's drug dealing or drugs, and, and those are easier to enforce. Enforcing sit-lie and, and, and park violations is, is, you're starting to get into areas where that may not be the best thing to do, either for the individual or for the time of the police, right? 
uh, they still are having foot patrols. They, they, they get their officers that are in between the training and assignment. That doesn't seem to solve the sort of street antisocial behavior problem. Right. If someone has mental issues and they're on the street, there's only so much you can do with them. You can pick them up. Um, but right now, for a pre person to be able to get treatment, they have to decide that they, that they accept the treatment. Are public restrooms being considered? They are being considered and also forms of, of maybe portable, right? So that it doesn't sure. happen on the streets. That's one of the reasons for the mayor's walk through Chinatown. I think we bring all of the people we need to bear and we do a community walk like that, talking with the citizens. We see that and the solutions will come out of that. So that's what we're gonna do. Anton Krucki is Honolulu's director of housing. Chinatown is part of his portfolio. A lot of people have seen the deteriorating condition of Chinatown streets through a website called Chinatown Watch. The public's invited to submit incidents. For example, the most recent photograph of public urination was posted Wednesday. There's also a picture of the Baratania Street parking lot's elevator building on Pawahi Street. The graffiti is gone. That's a good sign to Oren Schliemann, president and creative director of Infographic, a business and brand strategy company in Chinatown. He and his wife created Chinatown Watch after years of frustration trying to get city help. They're also Chinatown property owners. We're at the corner of Mauna Kea and Pawahi Street in a two-story stone building, beautiful building, with a great Chinese restaurant and a great Laotian grocery store downstairs. Right, right. The fresh look fun every day. Uh, oh, well, yeah. I, I got to eat from all the restaurants because we had so many good restaurants in Chinatown. Uh, when I started my company 30 years ago, I shared an office on uh, Bishop Street, big tall buildings up and down, no good restaurants. And I like Chinatown because it's like a friendly looking neighborhood. Had a lot of good restaurants. Uh, the rent was cheaper. It was at a time when uh, architects and designers and musicians and people like that were moving to Chinatown. And this is before Indigo Restaurant, right about the same time as Peggy is probably a fair way of putting it. This would have been 1987 or something like that, 87, mm -hmm. 88. So we've been here over 30 years in three different locations. Our first location was at the corner of Pawahi and uh, Nu'uanu on the third floor of a uh, building that Mrs. Stack had just finished renovating. So it was one of the first renovations in Chinatown. There was a lot of hope then. For, yeah. We heard about a lot of efforts being made in Chinatown to clean it up and add security. And the city does have a lot of properties down there. Yeah, the city owns 40% of Chinatown's property. When you add in the parks and the streets and the sidewalk, they're probably like 80% owner of the place. And you know, the question I have is like, uh, public buildings are held in public trust by the government for the benefit of the people, which would be us. But they don't take care of their buildings. They don't police the neighborhood. They don't clean up the thing, no matter what uh, they say they do in the press. As far as tactics, mm -hmm. Oren, what have you seen work down there? Well, nothing, to be honest. What works is when the, the city government in all its branches, including law enforcement and the courts and the social service providers and the people in the community get, a, get together and agree on the problem and work to solve it as a group. That kind of strategic planning has never been part of the strategy. Do you have a reason to think that there's uh, some help ahead? Well, yeah, I do. You know, the mayor has told me, Mike Formby, the managing director has told me, the mayor's wife has told me that they want to fix up Chinatown and they're going to go after it. So I get excited by that because I trust them to do it. We've had some Zoom calls with them and things like that, and they're responsive on email. And so how, what do we need to change as a group working together to get this on the right track? And then what do we need to measure now so that we can adapt and keep measuring in the future and sustain this over time? The big problem is Mayor Blanchardi may be here for four or eight years, but then someone else is going to come in and they'll just pull the plug on Chinatown. It happened before. Steve Alm, when he was the U.S. attorney in the early 2000s, came up with a very successful weed and seed program that put officers on the streets talking to merchants. Police drug guys went after the drug guys. What you're saying, Oren, makes a whole lot of sense, but it unfortunately does start with calling a meeting and getting people together. And for people on the street in Chinatown, you know, they, they want to know what changes am I going to see first? 
actually what I wrote in the plan is that there are a bunch of low hanging fruit that you can jump on right away. You don't really need mm -hmm. to meet, you just need to do like, like clean the sidewalks, clean the graffiti, get the police instead of driving by the drunk person on the sidewalk or the guy doing drugs in the corner, have them stop and get out of the car and ask them not to do that. That doesn't happen now. You could literally turn that key on tomorrow. We're really fortunate. ASB, they cleaned up all a park. You know, they're a great community member. They're paying for taking back all a park from the drug dealers, the gangs, and the people who are living there. It's out of their own pocket. Yeah, you got to love that. I'm on a call at the end of this week with uh, Central Pacific Bank, and they want to get involved from that side. So if we can have people on either side of Chinatown and bring them together around the middle, it's great for everyone. Yeah, you got a you it. got three great parks, you got great food, great entertainment. So let's just say you're a 27-year-old local kid, got a good job, you can work from wherever. So why not come run a loft in Chinatown and do your coding from here and have a lot of fun while you're doing it? Chinatown should be the creative industries capital of the state. When we have leadership in the government and in the community stepping up to work together to make things better for our society, we're a great place. Orrin Schliemann, businessman and property owner in Chinatown. He's thinking about River Street to Richard Street partnerships that could be the basis for sustained renewal. <laughs> that level of optimism has been rare in Chinatown recently, especially with Orrin. <laughs> Padlock gates and boarded windows do seem to be increasing. Things are bleak in parts of Chinatown, but... Real estate expert Andy Friedlander says there's been a lot of action elsewhere, starting at the Diamond Head end of downtown. Well, on Alakea, first of all, Central Pacific Bank just had a major, major remodel of their lower levels. And it's very exciting because it's opened up and it's created a, a wonderful, friendly environment. They just did a beautiful job on that. Yeah, they put a gallery in the bottom floor. They've got a, that incredible installation. Does this make sense for them to do this now? And what are they thinking, Andy? Well, they had a large space down there that was a branch. And it was probably too large from day one. And they put in Starbucks in there and a, a beer operation and some food. And they've also made it a community space for nonprofits and for their customers. How about, okay, move westward? What, what's happening on Bishop Street? What's, are those office buildings all empty now? <laughs> Pretty much. But the good news is that one building that used to be called 1132 Bishop, and maybe it's still called that, owned by Douglas Emmett, is being converted to all residential. That's very oh, exciting yeah. because that's going to provide a lot of life to downtown. Like right next to the church. Yes, right across from the church. I think it's like 500 units on 4th Street Mall. That's very significant. Plus, there's a transaction in escrow right now for the what used to be called the Superblock next to Walmart. It runs from 4th Street Mall to Hotel Street. It's a bunch of old buildings that are two or three story tall. Fisher Hawaii has been in there. Uh-huh. What's happening with that? It's in escrow right now, and I'm not at liberty to announce what's going on, but it's going to be very, very exciting. I'm really happy because it's going to have a major impact on downtown in a positive way. All right. People have been buying downtown. Yeah. What's, yes. what's the action been? So Carisu just bought the building Malka of that across Hotel Street. That's the old Pantheon building. And he bought that from the Dowsett family. And that's also going to become more valuable based on what happens on the Mackay side of that building. That's in escrow right now. So he did a good thing. Gee, that's a good block there. That's a That's key a very block. good block, yes. And they've got a fair amount of parking that comes as part of it. So it's a good deal. But moving on, the Peggy Hopper Gallery on New Uano was bought by Miley Myers. And she's opening her own shop in there. And she's also got a co-working space on the second level. She's done so much for the Hawaiian community. She's just a true gem. What kind of hope do you have for city properties down there? In the city property, the ground floor, which is a quasi-ground floor because it's off the ground, at the corner of Nuano and Hotel Street on the Mackay Diamond Head side, that's being converted to an art gallery. That's very promising. 
a wonderful lady is helping to do that. Sandy Pohl. Yes, thank you. She's terrific. What do you know about properties west of Nu'uanu? They're hurting really bad because the retail that was there has probably gone away 90%. And so they really closed up. It's problematic. Some properties are coming up for sale down there. Like it's which a, ones? It's in discussion right now. But the city doesn't move the homeless out, so it's going to be really hard. If River of Life were to move, it would help a lot. And then these guys are still working on the Wofat building and converting that. They still got steam, huh? It's going to happen, but they're going through the permitting process, which is taking a while. And then you read about the Remington building. Which one is that? It's that's, way down, that's, right? That's at the corner of Hotel and Bishop Street on the Mauka Diamond Head Corner. It's got a food court in it. And the downstairs? Yes. The coin place is there? Yes. What's happening there? They signed a new 75-year lease. The, the buyers of it bought the building and signed a 75-year lease for the ground. And they're converting it to a Marriott hotel. Oh, you're kidding. They're, they're going to convert that to a Marriott. So it won't be a high rise. It's going to be the building that's there now. And it's going to be reused. And it's going to be sensational. <sighs> okay, now help me. What, what's happening across Bishop from that? Nothing. Nothing. Where Kamala is, that's going to stay like that? It's just. Those buildings are all independently owned. And I think they're all going to stay there. That, that's so refreshing, isn't it? Kind of. You're right. So you think that people are still kind of bullish on downtown. <laughs> downtown Honolulu, they're figuring, is going to come back. Very definitely, yes. And I'm so excited about it. I think it's beginning already, but I would say it's going to take three to four years, two to three years, before we see a real turnaround. Real estate expert Andy Friedlander, formerly with Monroe Friedlander, now with Colliers International. Another sign of life on Alakea Street, Bar Podmore, a new venture by Senia chef Anthony Rush and his wife, partner, Catherine Nomura. Podmore refers to English sailor Joseph Podmore, who built that stone building at Alakea and Merchant. It's made of Hawaiian basalt, and you can see that masonry work through Chinatown. Uh, not unusual for the time around the 1900s. It's great to see it. I tell you, Bar Podmore, they say brunch by day, cocktails by night, and they plan to open in late spring or early summer. Speaking of those great stone buildings, you can see them all over Nu'uanu Avenue. And did you know that Nu'uanu is the center of Honolulu Town? Our major streets, King Hotel, Baratania, they're all numbered north and south from Nu'uanu. At various times, Nu'uanu has been a real activity center, too. Right now, it's, it's really an oasis. Art and essential books from Hawaii at Native Books, Vaivai Co-working above, idea and design of books there at Base Bookstore. There's Hound and Quail next door. And recently, at the corner of Pawahi and Nu'uanu, men's and women's wear designer Roberta Oaks opened her new shop. There was a little bit of anxiety in the beginning, um, and then it just, it just felt exactly right. And our customer base had continued to support through the whole pandemic online and so it felt like the support was still there the interest was still there and as long as we kept going everything was gonna be okay <laughs> i guess you had nothing to fear but fear itself <laughs> yeah i guess so i mean when we shut down in march for the first time it really felt like you know it was unbelievable and i think everyone felt that way that when would the world have ever stopped like that and given us time to just sit still and that was our only choice so that was such a i don't know that was such a magical little moment to reflect on so much personal business family you know just everything all our 
choices that we make every day and mm-hmm. um your business has grown yeah, steadily it has it has uh-huh. so nice moment to reflect yeah totally and, and just charge yeah. forward mm-hmm. yeah it i feel like it, that second shutdown the timing with the new space that we're in now becoming available it's like what else are you gonna do like it was the perfect time to build a new store and I, I felt like all of that time was about planning for the future it was about surviving last year but also setting up for the business to kind of be able to move into its next phase of itself and um it was a choice in some ways you can either stop and collapse or you reinvent yourself and keep keep moving and and your customer base was there so you felt you could yeah who who are your customers we have an amazing very loyal following a lot of really (laughs) cool guys that find us Uh you know that live here and are young businessmen older businessmen i would say what they have in common is a sense of fashion and you know they appreciate us for our unique approach to aloha shirts let's describe that a little bit i mean it's it's a fitted shirt it is yeah it's a little more we call it a more of a modern cut more tailored than a standard aloha shirt and we do small batches of shirts so not everybody's wearing the same shirt which is amazing i don't see any loopy florals here (laughs) to each their own Yeah, that, that was one thing that, you know, really set you apart at the beginning there. How would you describe your style? Um, I'm all about color and print. I feel like color inspires us on an emotional level. It definitely makes you feel a certain way. It can cheer you up. It can make you feel confident. Color combinations are huge for me. I kind of consider my style to be definitely 1960s kind of inspired the cheerfulness and funness of the color and print combos, but everything's got a modern, it's kind of got a modern approach as well. And we actually have a new collection, or I expanded into my first homewares line. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's, I mean, we're all spending more time at home anyway. (laughs) I think a lot of people worked on their houses this last year and redecorated and painted and reinvented living spaces my doing so made me you know that much more aware of how it's nice to have a little style in the kitchen too (laughs) oh yeah designer roberta oaks spoke with us in her new shop in chinatown Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting paintings by Hawaii artist Tom Walker in the exhibition Insipid at Homa First Hawaiian Center. More at honolulumuseum.org. Join HPR Saturday, February 20th for a live stream concert with jazz pianist Maggie Heron. The four-time Nahoku winner has performed in the islands for over 40 years and will be joined by longtime collaborator and bassist Dean Taba. They'll play originals plus great American classic tunes. Reserve your spot at hbrtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for HPR comes from Tony Lim, CPA in downtown Honolulu, specializing in trust and estate taxation, fiduciary accounting, and fiduciary administration services. In-person and virtual meetings available. TLimCPA.com. You could ask, who's Matt Lopresti? And you certainly would after the opening of the Hawaii Arts Summit. After weeks of buildup, Keynote Ai Weiwei unexpectedly appeared at the summit opening. Nothing prepared, but it was so generous of him. Hawaii Contemporary Executive Director Catherine Don was ever so gracious, kind of vamping on Zoom, telling this international art star, you know, hi, 
hang on, because actually a local official has something for him. We just prepared it. Just hang on here. Interminable minutes go by. And eventually, Representative Matt Lopresti of Eva District 41 gets on, and you could see Ai Weiwei's countenance change as Lopresti demonstrated his understanding of the work. If I could say a few words, I don't want to take up too much time. I'm a philosopher by training. I'm a professor of philosophy. I also happen to serve in the legislature, and I teach some classical Chinese philosophy. You know, one of the things that really I find personally inspiring by your work and the, the work of many of the artists participating in this is really the exemplification of what Confucius called the rectification of names. Zheng Ming, forgive my pronunciation. So many people talk about how important it is to speak truth to power, but what I think what artists do is even more than that. They force the powerful to be honest and be truthful through their work. Some of my personal favorite things of yours are the sculptures that really transforms classical Chinese objects into other things that are not so functional anymore. And it's a really interesting political commentary, among other things. And your website, sir, you talk about if nobody has a voice, then they're not a participant in society. Depriving somebody of their voice is to deprive them of their relationships. And your art helps to restore and, and, and shore up those relationships and celebrate them. And so I, I just want to congratulate you on that as well. So the, the state legislature hereby presents a certificate to honor and recognize Ai Weiwei, internationally renowned contemporary artist and activist. Whereas Ai Weiwei, son of the noted poet Ai Ching, has lived a remarkable and storied life, which encapsulates his political and creative convictions with an acute and prominent aesthetic and a multitude of mediums. His work forces the audience to examine society and its values through his personal poetry, his many sculptures, photographs, and public works. The use of Chinese art forms in his unique art captivates and perfectly illustrates his political and social beliefs in spite of numerous efforts by authorities to persecute him for his devotion to social justice and transparency of government actions around the globe. Whereas in celebration of Ai Weiwei as a keynote speaker for the inaugural Hawaii Contemporary Art Summit 2021, a multiple day event series of insightful and compelling talks, performances, film screenings and workshops that situates Hawaii at the center of a high caliber global discourse around contemporary art and ideals to local and international audiences. Sorry, I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I'll skip ahead and I'll end with it. Be it resolved by the House of Representatives of the 31st Legislature of the State of Hawaii, regular session of 2021, that this body hereby commends and congratulates Ai Weiwei for his exceptional lifetime commitment to the global community and his formidable efforts to educate, entertain, and inspire our world at large and extends its warmest aloha and best wishes of continued success in all future endeavors. Thank you for this time and opportunity. And someday I hope we get to meet in person. And as they say in India, have the honor of the darshan of your presence and your handshake. Until then, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm deeply honored and touched by great sincerity uh, sincerity and uh, your kind words. And uh, I think this is a, a great opportunity for me to work with, uh, with you and with uh, the people in your state. And uh, I, I'm, I'm deeply honored. Thank you. That was Ai Weiwei with Representative Matt Lopresti of Eva District 41, who delivered so many reasons to check out Ai's work for yourself. Lopresti was recognizing artist Ai's participation with Hawaii Contemporary in the Hawaii Triennial 2022. The Art Summit last week was kind of tilling the soil for the Triennial. And I've got excerpts from two key presentations for you today to just kind of whet your appetite for other conversations you can still access at the Hawaii Contemporary website. Now, Hawaii curator Drew Broderick took this opportunity to highlight foundational work by artists in this community. He shows how their work is tied to the land. Here, part of his conversation with photographers Mark Hamasaki and Kapulani Landgraf, teacher and student. They recorded the Ko'olau landscape during construction of the H3 freeway. 
Listen to how their work is shaped from the very first decision of which camera to use. With 4x5, pretty much you got to put it on a tripod, which really changes the way you photograph. One, it's more constricted. You got to take the time, and the, so it's not very spontaneous. And you got to compose the shot more carefully and uh, wait for the lighting to be right, wait for the right moment. Wait for the wind to stop? And wait, wait for the wind to stop if, if it's really windy. And uh, in Hawaii, it's a challenge because if, if you're shooting in full sunlight, it's, you got immense problems when you go into the dark room. So waiting for the right lighting. And then you also have all the other paraphernalia, such as tripod, cable release, dark cloth, dark cloth lens, <laughs> lenses, different film lenses. Film sheet carrier. Yeah, films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people kind of criticized us of, of actually using large format. You're shooting the destruction. Why not shoot the rawness by using handheld small format cameras? I mean, we could have gotten a lot more. We could have gotten different angles. But I think by using this aesthetic, we're contrasting and working within the genre of landscape photography rather than making beautiful shots like Ansel Adams was doing in the uh, turn of the century. We were using the same techniques and the same, more or less the same cameras as the traditional landscape photographers in contrast to show the destruction, to trying to show what paths uncontrolled development can take. For me, it was like always countering like these visitor photographers that come in that you know really shoot just beautiful pictures of Hawaii, this parasitical view of Hawaii. Like how important it is that you're from the place that you photograph. But um, I think that always comes into question for me because there's so very little Hawaiian photographers, especially doing like documentary work. I mean, that's why we shoot in black and white. It's not color, right? <laughs> that was definitely conscious. <laughs> Kapu and Mark photographed the project regularly until November of 1992, when they were temporarily barred from accessing the site by state representatives from the Hawaii Department of Transportation. Over the course of four years, Piliamo'o constructed a ku'e archive of thousands of photographic documents that made visible the destruction of cultural sites and wahipana in the highway's planned path. Any sort of information on H3 was you're only getting it from the Honolulu Advertiser or the Honolulu Star Bulletin or the Windward Sun Press. So there was no information. So I, our first show was in, I think, 1990 at Omalihio Park. You know, the reason to show it then was because no one knew what was happening. I think there was only a couple of archaeological reports done um, when we started. Um, but if you think about it, most of the reports were done after the freeway was open. And how is that right? <laughs> right? I mean, I think that, and, and seeing every week, seeing like places like wiped out, like a cultural site gone, right? And for me, it was always an urgency to try to find out more or get that out. Um, through the process, I think we, we were part of the mitigation process. It was always asking, how come the reports aren't done yet, right? You're going to mitigate, but you don't even know what you're mitigating. In 2015, Aipohaku Press, with support from the Native Hawaiian Education Association, published a Lukuvale, Devastation Upon Devastation. The book presents a selection of over 100 photographs by Piliamo'o, introduced through text by Richard Hamasaki and Dennis Kawaharada, accompanied by an expanded 11 pauku version of the kanikau in Olala Hawaii and English, and a supplementary collection of primary source materials called from the Honolulu Advertiser, Honolulu Star Bulletin, and other newspapers. It took between 12 and 13 years to get this published. And we weren't sure, like, you know, we had a lot of controversial quotes that were in there that really brought out accountability to certain people, like politicians, or you know, governors or archaeologists and all that. We didn't know if they would want to accept it because we didn't know if it was too controversial. You know, I think I told Mark, if I die, you make sure that you publish this book. We, we got it published. It was persistence and luck. The book is like a manual for not lost causes, but um, a strategy of how to protest, 
photographers have been photographing struggles since evictions of Chinatown and, and uh, Kalama Valley and Waihole, Waikane. That's why we included the timeline and the newspaper articles so, so people can remember. When we were started documenting the H3 freeway, it was supposed to be the last major earthquake project on Oahu. Um, and we know today that's not true, right, with the building of rail. So I think, you know, once something is built over, um, you forget what lies beneath. And the whole thing about doing this book, doing the work, it was about, like, let's not repeat history again. Let's do this right. But as you, you can see with rail, that's not happening. Photographers Kapolani Landgraf and Mark Hamasaki collaborate as Piliamo'o. The book, Eluku Vale'e, Destruction Upon Destruction, records the construction of the H3 freeway, glowing Ansel Adams-style landscapes of destruction. It really plays, plays with your mind. What we're doing is kind of needle-dropping through the Hawaii Arts Summit because there were staple foods in there and there were some bonbons as well I really would not want you to miss. And here's one. Hawaii Triennial head curator Melissa Chu interviews Chicago artist and social innovator Theaster Gates. Listen for how he starts making ceramics and the whole thing spins out until it touches people around a dinner table. A lot of my practice has to do with the way that I was trained and the way that I was raised. And in addition to kind of being in the studio and plastic arts, I had this degree in urban planning and, and felt pretty passionate about not only cities, but about the, the theories that were generated around why cities work and how they work and maybe why they fail. And so what has become regarded as a social practice was really just me testing the theories of urbanism in a real place. But that work was being fueled by, you know, what was largely a, a conventional sculptural practice where, um, you know, I was, I was making initially ceramic objects uh, only and kind of using the medium of clay to try to speak to craft and contemporary art and then over the years, I just would use any material that I wanted. So, so I think that what happened was that then my interest in urban planning and in the built environment was growing at the same time that art and sculpture and big ideas were growing. And at some point, those things started to meet. People maybe focused on the parts that were more socially based, and those parts got a lot of media attention. I feel like in some ways, every four or five years, for some period of time, it's really about what I'm doing in Chicago and on the block, and then for a period of time, it's what's happening in the galleries and in the museums. And I really like that. I like that balance. A lot of focus has gone into your work in the black communities, and I'm really interested in hearing more about the Yamaguchi Institute because I think that your work in ceramics and your research in Japan, your travel there, I'd love to hear more about how you came to create the Yamaguchi Institute and really what were the motivations behind it? Thanks for asking. I have to admit that, that for me, the Yamaguchi Institute's probably one of the most important realized projects of my practice. By the time I created Yamaguchi, I had been to Japan twice as a young potter trying to get my chops up. I actually went to a small town called Tokoname, and I stayed with a family, the Tamita family, uh, who are still dear to me, and I, I started making pots, you know, and, and I, I was already trained, but I realized when I got to Japan that I wasn't a very good potter and that I uh, had a lot to learn. But the Yamaguchi Institute then was this way of taking what felt like a a black sensibility and black ideology around style and taste and the foods of black people and then blending those ideologies and, and, and that reality with this training that I was starting to get around tea ceremony, ritual projects, Shintoism, craft making of all sort including textile and wood. And I felt like I was becoming even more of a lover of craft while my conceptual practice was starting to grow. And so then there was the question of like, well, how do I take this very specific style 
of Japanese ceramic making, combine that with my black experience as a conceptual work. And I decided that this institute, named after Shoji Hamada, who was an important potter, kind of introduced to the West by a guy named Bernard Leach. And then the last name, Yamaguchi, was the prefecture in which the city Hagi, which is the city that can boast of a celebrating tea ceremony as we know it. And so I thought maybe if I could take this name and become the first disciple of, of Shoji Yamaguchi, that, that I would uh, be able to kind of demonstrate this black and Japanese synthesis. And, and I really felt, even though there was a fiction associated with the project, that my ceramic skill got better, the synthesis started to happen where um, I felt my sensibility was interrupted by the sensibility of Yamaguchi. And, uh, and now, you know, I have this project that I called, called Afrominge, that Afrominge is the kind of full realization of this synthesis or this, this syncretic energy between the East and blackness. And so one of the tenets was that there would be a very large meal and the meal would combine a Japanese ceremony with soul food so that we were having sashimi with black-eyed peas and a kind of braised salted fish with eel and, trying, and then collard greens topped with unagi. It was an amazing meal. And people at that point really wanted to believe in the institute you know, and, and felt, felt it to be, yeah, they wanted to believe in the fiction. It was one of those things where I, I was also kind of practicing institution building. But I think that in this focused, named way, it acknowledges the impact that Japan has had on me. And in some ways, the encouragement that Japan gave me to go back to Mississippi, back to blackness, and kind of ask, what else is inside blackness that's worth preserving and worth amplifying? And then how can the excellence that I learned in craftsmanship in Japan be a kind of fine tuning agent to make those things that I already love recognizable in new ways? Artist, social innovator, Theaster Gates from the Hawaii Arts Summit. Enjoy the full interview and many others at the Hawaii Contemporary website. We'll post a link with this story. African-Americans, Japanese-Americans, everyone is forever figuring it out. Meanwhile, on this day in 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, requiring all persons of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast to report to internment camps, essentially concentration camps. That changed my mother's life and the lives of 119,000 others. Her family gave up everything they owned, which, granted, was not much, they found themselves in a wooden barracks in the desert at Manzanar. People say that could never happen again. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. This week on Science Friday, as Amazon workers vote on whether to unionize, we look at how tech companies are shaping not just the lives of their customers, but also their workers. There's nothing about the Uber app that prevents the companies from providing unemployment insurance, providing minimum wage, providing overtime. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. 
Support for HPR comes from HomeWorks Construction, a full-service design-build firm with 21 years in the business and more than 750 projects, offering services from planning through to completion for new homes and remodels, homeworksconstruction.com. Making things we already love recognizable in new ways. That's happening big time in a new local music release. Kawili is the name of a new compilation that blends Hawaiian and Filipino influences. It's a passion project of Maui attorney Lance Collins. His mom is Filipino. He spent time with family in the Philippines and got a Ph.D. for work on Philippine folktales and contemporary cinema. Now, this project also tapped the formidable skills of musician scholars Zachary and Nicholas Lum. They perform in the group Keau Ho. It was a complicated process, and I'm very thankful for the Lum brothers because they really know the Hawaiian side inside out. They're both musical virtuoso geniuses and also Hawaiian language poets, both of them. So for that part, I defer entirely, but there was a lot of back and forth. I mean, I think the translation process from when Nick first started on it until we had the final product, I think, was like a year and a half long. Technically, that's how you start the album. What would be the activity accompanying this song? <laughs> so the Tini Kling is actually, um, the, it's a song that accompanies a really well-known popular dance that's performed in Hawaii. It's, I think it's actually one of the most well-known Philippine folk dances in the world. Basically, there are two individuals who hold long bamboo poles and they tap it and slide it and, and click it against each other. And then you have dancers who are basically dancing in between the poles. I did that in high school uh, for, for the Filipino club for May Day. Yeah, yeah. Jumping in between the, the clacking poles and whatnot. A lot of local people have tried that little bit of experience of Filipino culture. And yeah. I see in the album, that's kind of done in a Filipino style. Uh-huh. In Ilocano, it's known as Dung Dung Wenkanto, which is the first line, which means I love you. It's something that could be sung to a child because it's a lullaby, but it's like also a love song, but it's a very tender, affectionate type of love song. Definitely in Ilocos, anybody who hears the song will immediately know what the song is. In meaning because some of the metaphors that were used in the original song, if you translate it literally into Hawaiian, it, it doesn't sound nice or it doesn't sound like right. Like what? Like mongooses aren't beloved here as they are there or something like that? Uh, one of the things is that love is described like a um, insect bite. <laughs> so it's sort of, it's sort of like doesn't quite have the same ring in Hawaiian. So. But they got a point there. They really do. Yeah. <laughs> One of the songs we picked, which is uh, in the Hawaiian, it's Nona Kawa Kao, it's a duet. In the Ilocano, it's Binigan Bigat. It's actually a, a really well-known Philippine folk dance. We picked it, first of all, because it's such a great song. In Ilocano, the guy is telling the woman, find the coffin and take me to the street because if you don't love me back, I'm gonna die. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And what's very funny about the song is she basically sings back, oh, what a pity, such a pity. I guess you're gonna be dead. <laughs> <laughs> and that you can't say in Hawaiian. So Nick and, and Zach, I think they did a really great job of retaining that very heartfelt playfulness, but without the, the death theme. I, I want to mention one other song, which is Bahai Kubo. That one is probably the most well-known in the Philippines. It's, a, it's Everyone learns it when they're a kid. In, in school and it's in, in um, Tagalog, it's basically, it's about a grass hut, a, a, a nipa palm thatched hut that most Filipinos lived in until very recently. Um, and it talks about all of the food that's grown around the house, all of the vegetables, the root crops, that sort of thing. So when that was translated into Hawaiian, I mean, this is one where we, I didn't even have to have a discussion with Nick and Zach, I told them, there are not Hawaiian words for half of these vegetables. Um, and so instead of trying to make up stuff or trying to rewrite, why don't we have the song be about basically a Hawaiian grass hut talking about um, the canoe plants that would, would be grown somewhere around 
the this the you know the the hale and so they agreed and so bahai kubo has all of these canoe plants you know taro sugar kukui mwala ulu all of these different uh, plants and then to sort of bring the canoe you know the concept of of the austronesian migration and stuff zack plays a tahitian ukulele so it has a very playful light lightness to it to an untrained ear might think oh this just sort of sounds like a filipino rondalia sort of thing but actually if you go to the Philippine Rondalia people, they're like, what instrument is that? <laughs> because they're not so familiar with the Tahitian ukulele. So really, it sounds like it could be, but it actually, with the experts who have the trained ear, they're like, okay, this is definitely not Filipino. What, what is that? Only in Hawaii. Lance Collins, producer of Kawili, an album of Filipino and Hawaiian music combined. Available on Melee.com. We'll post a link with this story. <laughs> How do you like it? And we'll swing back now into the tinikling with Jeff Alhoy. That's it for this Aloha Friday. My gosh, the time flies. Thanks so much for this time together. Let us know if you've got something happening in your neighborhood, okay, or in your tribe. Call us, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or post comments on Facebook. We read them. And I'm going back to the conversation page on the HPR website today to listen to Catherine's interview with Brian Schatz yesterday. This whole program is a Kako thing. Lillian Zhang, Jason Ubai, Russell Subiono, and Savannah Harriman Pote. Thank you so much. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation Monday. Until then, let's take care of each other. Happy Aloha Friday. Mm-hmm.